This week on the show, we have a Pi-Powered Plan 9 cluster for you, an SSH tar pit, our dist for when Ansible is a bit too much, falling in love with OpenBSD again, an article, and how I created my first FreeBSD port, as well as the Tilde Institute of OpenBSD Education, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 294, the SSH Tar Pit, recorded for the 17th of April 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're back with a regular episode for you this week, as promised. And the first item that we have this week is a Pi-Powered Plan 9 cluster. Ooh. Yes. Uh, so this is a four-node cluster for experimenting with distributed operating systems and running Plan 9. I didn't know you could run Plan 9 on ARM. Hmm, apparently they made it uh, work. Yep. Uh, Plan 9 is uh, a development OS from Bell Labs back in the day when they were, uh, after they had done Unix, they were thinking, how would we do Unix differently if we were to do it over again? Um, but it came from the yeah, same staple as Unix, uh, which, of course, is what Linux was then designed to try to be like and what OS X runs on top of. Uh, just like Unix, Plan 9 was developed as a research OS, a vehicle for trying out new concepts. But with uh, building on key Unix principles and taking the ideas of devices are just files even further. Uh, so like um, to create a socket on Plan 9, you actually just create a file in this uh, special directory with its like, you know, the IP address you want to connect to, the port you want to connect to, etc. Uh, and by creating that file, it opens a socket, and then you read and write to that file, and so on. It's, it's kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, so anyway, in the post, uh, they take a quick look at the Plan 9 OS and some of its notable features before moving on to how to construct a self-contained four-node Raspberry Pi cluster uh, that would actually let them play with using it as a distributed operating system. Ah, uh, okay. And there's pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I mean, Pi clusters we've seen already, but with Plan 9, that is that is something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they got a nice housing for it and got it all hooked up. Pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, they even got the embossed um, Plan 9 mascot. The logo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, if you want to run this for longer, then you might as well have it mm -hmm. uh, present somewhere that people can see it. And the most important question was, why? They say, <laughs> you might be thinking, but why would you want to build such a thing? And the possible answer for each include, because you can. And in this case, while Plan 9 may not be uh, destined for world domination, it is fascinating from an operating system engineering perspective. And as previously noted, ideas taken from it have gone on to be implemented elsewhere. You know, every once in a while you hear about this new crazy idea and it's like, oh, you just took that from Plan 9. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you, sometimes we forget where these things are coming from and that Plan 9 is under development and it's available out there for people to use. And so it's perfectly fine to run it on your Raspberry Pi cluster. <laughs> yep. So our next story is an interesting one called uh, Endless SSH. 
Or uh, Endless. An S yes, uh, an SSH tar pit, uh, which is an interesting thing to do to all those bots. Um, so they say, I'm a big fan of tar pits, a network service that intentionally inserts delay in its protocol, trying to slow down clients by forcing them to wait. This arrests the speed at which a bad actor can attack or probe the host system, uh, and it ties up some of the attacker's resources that might otherwise be spent attacking the next host. Uh, when done well, a tar pit imposes more cost on the attacker than the defender. Um, so, you know, you basically are doing a reverse denial of service attack. You're making them waste their own resources as they try to attack you. Mm -hmm. And you've seen this with mail servers. That is uh, quite common for uh, getting on spammers' nerves. Uh, but for SSH, this is also a possible implementation. Uh, I've I've done it to people on my IRC server using the dummy net rate limiting in IPFW. Ah, so yes. Their IRC <laughs> messages would come up a couple characters at a time instead of, <laughs> you know, normal speed. We're on uh, a slow line today, yep. Yeah. So they say, uh, the internet is a very hostile place, and anyone who's ever stood up an internet-facing IPv4 host has witnessed the immediate and continuous attacks against the servers. I've maintained such a server for nearly six years now, and more than 99% of my incoming traffic has had ill intent. Uh, one part of my defense has been tar pits in various forms. Uh, so then they talk about Endlesh uh, and using an SSH tar pit. So uh, this program opens a socket and pretends to be an SSH server. However, it actually just uh, ties up the SSH client with fake promises indefinitely, or at least until the client eventually gives up. After cloning the repository, uh, you can just install it, I think. Um, there might be a package for it now instead of having to compile it yourself. But mm. in this case, they start running it on port 2222. Your SSH client will hang there and wait for at least several days before finally giving up. Like a mammoth in the La Brea tar pits uh, in California, it got itself stuck and couldn't find a way out. As I write, my internet-facing SSH tar pit currently has 27 different clients trapped in it. <laughs> uh, a few of these have been connected for weeks. And, uh, in one particular spike, there were 1,378 clients trapped uh, all at once in a 20-hour period. Uh, so my internet-facing endless uh, server listens on port 22, which is the standard SSH port, to gather the most possible attackers. I long ago moved my real SSH server off onto an oddball port. Uh, this makes the logging a whole lot more manageable, and hopefully the endless convinces attackers not to bother looking on other ports because there's obviously SSH right there on the main port. Hmm. Just with a little bit more stickiness to it. Yeah. In particular, to say, uh, Enlish exploits a, a small paragraph in RFC 4253, the SSH protocol specification. Immediately after the TCP connection is established and before negotiating any cryptography, both ends send an identification string. You know, SSH dash proto version slash software version, etc. Um, the RFC also says the server may send other lines of data before sending the version string. Uh, so there is no limit to the number of lines, just that these lines must not begin with SSH dash, since uh, that would be ambiguous with the identification line. The lines must not be longer than 255 characters, including the um, character turn and line feed characters. So the endless server sends an endless stream of randomly generated other lines of data. Uh, without ever intending to send an actual protocol version string. By default, it waits 10 seconds between each line. This slows down the protocol, but prevents it from actually timing out. 
This means that Enlish uh, doesn't need to do anything with the cryptography uh, and doesn't use any CPU cycles. It just keeps feeding uh, the bad guys with endless gibberish. <laughs> Serves them right. Uh, so even uh, when many clients are being trapped, Enlish spends more than 99.999% of its time sleeping. Uh, it wouldn't even be accurate to call it I.O. bound. If anything, it's timer bound, waiting around before sending out the next line of memory or uh, data. The most precious resource to conserve is memory, and they talk about how that works. Uh, mm-hmm. But it looks like it just uses a stack variable, so it's not going to use up much memory at all. Yep. And they talk about, you know, uh, threads and polling. They even mentioned that they could have used ePoll from Linux or KQ from the BSDs, which would be much more efficient than poll. Um, but they mentioned that the problem with poll is that it's con- constantly registering and unregistering endlesh on each of the overdue sockets each time around the main loop. And this is much more CPU intensive than uh, that's all inflicted on the kernel this time. And there's code examples down there, so you can try it out on your own, uh, run it in the browser even, and see it spin for hours and hours. Time for News Roundup this week. We have an article about Artist uh, from OpenBSD Amsterdam. When Ansible is too much. So they talk about uh, another post where Artist was mentioned uh, that sparked them to write one as well. So uh, it's great they write an underappreciated tool. And they wanted to show how they wrapped Duas around it. So there are two services in their infrastructure for which they were looking to keep the configuration in sync and to reload the process when the configuration had indeed changed. Uh, there's a pair of NSD slash unbound hosts and a pair of hosts running RelayD and HTTPD with CARP between them. And they didn't have the requirement to go full configuration management with tools like Ansible or SaltStack. And there wasn't any interest in building additional logic on top of rsync or repositories. So enter our dist. Artist is a program to maintain identical copies of files over multiple hosts. So remote dist, uh, yeah, distribution or uh, synchronization. Uh, it preserves the owner, group, the mode, and m times of files if possible and can update the programs that are executing. The only tricky part with Artist is that in order to copy files and restart the services uh, that are owned by a privileged user, that has to be done by root. So their solution to the problem was to wrap do as around artist. And you can see how they do that. Uh, so they decided to create a separate user account for artist to operate uh, on the destination host. So they added that and created a SSH key for that and to, to copy that to the destination host, of course, so that they can log in without requiring a password. And then in order to wrap do as around it, they moved uh, artist to artist-orig for um, having a backup copy and created a shell script around uh, artist with the same name so that it's shadowing the original artist and running do s on this artist original dash capital S make that executable and then you can now say our updates to do s and let that execute as a do s uh, executable and once that is done they can create the files needed that they want to artist between the hosts and in their case, that was the uh, NSD and unbound configuration files. And with that, they just run uh, artist unbound, and it would look at the hosts that are part of the um, artist cluster, if you want to call it, or the, the targets, and that get nicely synchronized to the remote targets. Yeah. Um, 
depending on what your needs are with the ownership on the, the config files and so on, it might be better to use the do as just on the special commands like the rcctl reload rather than running all of our dist as root. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it depends on your setup whether you can have the, um, for example, unbound.conf be owned by the right user to be able to do all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you uh, might have to end up running our dist as the user that uh, unbound is going to run as the its unprivileged user because that might be what, who would own the config file uh, instead of having a separate our dist user. Uh, but then if you're going to have, you know, NSD and unbound is one our dist config and um, what was their example? The relay D and HTTP as a separate one, you might have to run two different instances of our dist as the two different users. But yeah. It works. It yep. seems like an interesting way to do it. Mm-hmm. So Ardis is not in the base system, at least not on FreeBSD, so it, uh, it's it available. A, an open BSD thing. Yeah, but it's available sure. as a port and people can get mm-hmm. it if they need to. Yep. Uh, okay. So next we have uh, a blog from Functionally Paranoid and they said uh, they're falling in love with OpenBSD again. I go on, I was checking the other day and was uh, appalled at how long it had been since I had posted on the blog. I had been working a job uh, during most of 2018 that had me traveling 3,600 miles by air every week. Ooh. <laughs> Lots of miles. Um, that, that, yeah. <laughs> we know what we're talking about. So that about. was at least an excuse. I uh, say, so, so what was my latest project? I wanted to get something better than a clunky old T500 Freedom laptop um, that I could use as my daily driver. Some background here. My first paid gig as a programmer was on SunOS 4, the pre- uh, predecessor to Solaris and Alteryx on a deck uh, microvax. And I went from there to Commodore Amiga and doing preemptive multitasking back in 1985. Uh, I went from there to OS 2 uh, and finally decided to sell out and move to Windows uh, in the mid-90s. Uh, anyway, so this is, uh, my wife bought me an iPad literally just as they started working with computers other than Macs. And I watched uh, with fascination as Apple made the big gamble and moved away from PowerPC chips to Intel. That was the beginning of the Apple fanboy year for me. My gateway drug was a G4 Mac Mini, and I managed somehow to get in on a pre-production developer build of an Intel-based Mac. And I was quite happy with the platform until about three years ago. Uh, When the Mac laptop came out without an escape key, and with that gimmicky little one row of uh, touchscreen keys. Uh, as a longtime VI user, uh, I was disgusted. That forced me to recognize that it wasn't, uh, I was no longer Apple's target market. They wanted average computer users who didn't care if they were on the latest and greatest chipset and were getting more and more close to, you know, unupgradable every day. Mm. Uh, so, uh, as much as I would have loved to be an OpenBSD or to use OpenBSD as my daily driver, it seemed that tools like Skype for Business or Link or whatever it was called this week. Um, it's like a virus infiltrating the modern enterprise. I ended up uh, doing quite happy on either Dell or Lenovo hardware running something like Ubuntu LTS. Um, to satisfy more work needs for Skype for Business, I ran a domain-joined VM of Windows 10 and felt like the dirty old days of the early 90s with a 16-bit OS. <laughs> and you had to click on the penalty box and run a Windows program. Uh, they say that you uh, you went to workflow. It's gotten ingrained into me, and was putting 
as I was putting around the office, I came across my beloved uh, ThinkPad X230 and considered that uh, it'd be the height of good software engineer-oriented design and well-balanced for travel perspective. Uh, and so, you know, say the X220 was nice for the mechanical keyboard lovers. Uh, although I'd love to be a purist, I'd gotten used to the chiclet keys, and so the X230 was fine. Okay. Anyway, and they go on how they fell back in love with OpenBSD. Uh, so they installed OpenBSD, had their continuous user of this incredible operating system uh, for a long time now on their APU2 firewall, and ran it off and on for years on various laptops. Um, but this time the goal was different. Uh, while they may be uh, purists uh, that want me to run FWM on my window manager and stick as close to the base system as possible, I'd really gotten used to the Ubuntu workflow and wanted to see how much of that I could actually reproduce under OpenBSD. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started by installing OpenBSD 6.4 with full disk encryption uh, after the four minute ordeal of installing US. They comment how much they love that it only takes four minutes. Uh, I had a machine that would boot, but I needed uh, to get some firmware to get things cranking. I hadn't had a chance yet to purchase or replace the Wi-Fi card with an Aetherost, so I needed the Intel IWN firmware. Uh, once that was in place, it was time to focus on what I needed in order to get the machine to be my daily driver. Uh, so they say, first thing first, I needed to do the necessary food to get my user up uh, with Duas support. Uh, and I actually alias Duas to sudo on my Ubuntu machine uh, because they're so used to that. Um, installed Vim and aliased it to VI and their KSHRC and added color LS and a bunch of other stuff. With that, I installed the GNOME shell and got a baseline of the software they like going. Uh, and then started going on and on with that. And they say that uh, they're very happy to have a standalone uh, system that's not dependent on systemd. Mm. Anyway, they said, uh, with all that in place, a reboot had me in a brightly colored uh, GNOME desktop environment. I quickly put on sunglasses so it didn't blind me and started looking uh, for a theme that would tone it down a bit. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, they go on to how they dealt with uh, work stuff. Some, they say the personal emails, Office 365. And they say it's a long story that involves the fact that I have family members who love Outlook on Mac and won't open Google Calendar invites. So they installed Evolution uh, and got that up and running. Uh, and then they're printing producing uh, LibreOffice and, yes, dealing with printing issues in cups. Uh, but they got all that going, playing with the privacy tools and Nextcloud and uh, so on. And they say, in conclusion, I now have my primary workflow re uh, reduced on OpenBSD with the exception of Skype for Business that always forced me to run a Windows VM. I've decided that my New Year's resolution, even if it's a bit late, uh, is to use that awful program on my mobile device and uh, say to hack with it with my laptop uh, with some remaining work, uh, they do need to get the Aetherus Wi-Fi off eBay and replace the Intel, although the IWN works pretty well under BSDs. Uh, they want to move to current snapshots instead of uh, the release, and they say, I just discovered that the package there have GNOME 3.3 instead of the older version, which may clear up the annoyances they were having with the mail client. 
and I want to start to do what I really want to do with OpenBSD, and that is uh, get a base Kali Linux pen testing uh, set of ports and packages created and create a meta package that just installs them all. Uh, that way, InfoSec professionals uh, can reuse OpenBSD instead of Kali. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good start. Mm-hmm. And certainly a story, um, you know, migrating from systems to operating systems to different hardware that forces you to make uh, decisions that, yeah, changes your whole workflow sometimes. Yeah, uh, you know, I have my FreeBSD workstation at work, uh, and I do all of my work on it every day. Uh, and the only time we have to use the, there's one Windows computer in the corner of the office that is used for video conferencing and for a bit of the IPMI type stuff that uh, wants to do the extra Java silliness mm-hmm. um, that has... The Java stuff would work under FreeBSD, but the problem is the IPMI client has some native code. It actually ships like a shared object file for Linux. Uh, uh, and it has one for Windows and one for Mac, but it doesn't have one, obviously, for BSD. Or, I don't know, they should have a generic one. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it's as close as we can get at the moment and uh, better than relying on some vendors' crazy ideas about how keyboards should look like or uh, how be to <laughs> how to behave. All right, um, that's that story. And the next story that we have, uh, I guess speaking to a lot of people who want to get started with the BSDs, in this case, how I created my first free BSD port. That's uh, what a lot of people want to know and because they want to contribute something. So here's an article or kind of a how-to. Um, so it uh, starts like this. Uh, I created my first FreeBSD port recently. I found that FreeBSD didn't have a port for GeoCD, which is a continuous integration and continuous deployment uh, CI slash CD system. And this was a great opportunity to learn how to build a FreeBSD port while also contributing back to the community. Excellent idea. So initial setup is you do a package uh, update and get the latest uh, FreeBSD built environment so that you have everything and then install your favorite tools. Uh, in this case, they're using it on a DigitalOcean droplet and they install a couple of things they they always do, like an editor, a Tmux, and some other software. Yeah, so they installed the dependencies uh, for cool. binary packages to save time. So yeah, Bash, Vim, Tmux, um, Java, Ruby, some Ruby gems, etc. Yeah, that's what GeoCD needs. And then they started a new Tmux session and um, went into their ports directory, fetched all the ports using PortSnap. Um, and then you start creating your environment for ports development. So uh, there's a global variable, a shell variable called developer equals yes. And you tee that to etcmake.conf. So it's basically a make.conf entry, developer equals yes. Yeah, so they're basically... Uh adding developer equals yes to make.conf so that the ports tree will output the extra warnings and stuff for developer mode rather than user mode. Mm -hmm. And they link to the porters handbook, which has also a section on quick porting or starting uh, with ports. So that's a good reference. And then you start creating your own port directory on the user ports. In this case, it's slash devel slash gocds dash server. And there's a file subdirectory there. Uh, Then you need a couple of uh, files in there, like a make file, a package description, a package plist, and so on. And each one serves a specific function so that the ports framework can pick them up and display, for example, a description what the port is about. Then it's about the make file. How do you know? How do you fetch this thing? 
Well, yeah, they put in the basic stuff, like the name of the port, the version, what categories it's in, and the master site, which is basically the URL where you're going to go get it from, and the dist files, which is the list of file names. Uh, that way, when you run make fetch, it will go and download that file. And then when you need to make the dist info, which is the file that has the hash of the download, you can run make make some, and it will calculate the checksum of that file. You should also verify that checksum against the original website so that you don't create a port with the wrong checksum. Oh, yeah. Important. And then uh, they have, uh, for the extract phase, you have to teach it a couple other things. Uh, in this case, they had to teach it um, that um, because this is a, a Go-based thing, it uh, you just extract it. You don't have to compile it. Uh, so they teach it that. Teach it to create uh, some users and uh, a user and group for the uh, port to run as. Mm-hmm. And then they so have the uh, the package fee list. Yeah, that contains the contents of the package. All the files that make up the software. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the the list so that uh, package knows which files to install and which ones to actually put in the package when you're compiling it. And then they have their um, under files. They have the template for the rc.dscript to handle starting up and restarting and so on the service. Mm-hmm. And then and, you know it has to use Java and Ruby, uh, and then it needs Java at least one point eight, and that because it's Java, it's architecture independent, so you don't need to compile it differently for i three d six and AMD sixty four and so on. Mm-hmm. That saves some headache, yeah. and yeah, there's uh, separate sections in the Portis Handbook for Java specific instructions that you might need to know about. And then there's basically the testing, make stage, make package, and finally to install the port to see that it ends up where you want it to uh, be. And last thing, always submit this port to the FreeBSD project so that someone can take it and you are now uh, responsible for your own little port. And then last story this week is the Tilde Institute of OpenBSD Education. Uh-huh. Uh, so welcome to the Tilde Institute. This is an OpenBSD machine whose purpose is to provide a space uh, in the Tildeverse for experimentation with and education on OpenBSD. A variety of editors, shells, and compilers are installed to allow for development in a native OpenBSD environment. OpenBSD's HTTPD is configured with slow CGI as the fast CGI provider and an SQLite3 uh, database system is available. Uh, This allows users um, to experiment with web development using compiled CGI in C, like the Beaches uh, framework that we talked about before. In addition, they also have uh, PHP 7 and MySQL, or MariaDB, uh, available upon request. Mm, Interesting. It reminds me of the old uh, free shell servers and stuff. Yeah, so you can get your hands uh, dirty a little bit without having to walk through the installation first. So you can try it out before running it yourself. Hey, it's time for Beastie Bits this week. We have SoloBSD 19.03 stable in this episode. So uh, there's a new build available for SoloBSD. This is based on the latest hardened BSD stable branch and contains um, 
some new packages, CPDub, DMI Decode, E2FS Procs, IPMI Tool, Nano RSync, Smart Modules, Tmux, HTOP, uh, MakeSH, MKSH, KSH, OKSH, and Python 3.6. So these are some essential tools that you yeah, always uh, I'm guessing, I think use. this is some kind of live CD type thing. Uh, very useful set of tools. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, also the full changelog available if you're interested in that. And they're basically um, a fork or uh, a separate uh, hardened BSD release based on that. Yeah. Uh, then we have uh, the slides from the HBSDCon presentation about WireGuard being ported to NetBSD. So uh, oh. if you haven't heard of it, WireGuard's a new open source uh, VPN software. Uh, it uses fast, modern, and secure uh, stuff. You can state-of-the-art crypto like X25519, ChaCha20, Poly1305, etc. as an alternative to IPsec and OpenVPN. Um, Currently, there's an in-kernel implementation for Linux, uh, user space implementation in Go that works on BSD, uh, and user space implementations for uh, Android and iOS, and a work in progress for Windows. Uh, but they wanted to do uh, WireGuard for NetBSD as an in-kernel implementation. So that would uh, import libb2 uh, for the Blake hashing algorithm and libsodium to get the newer crypto stuff like curve 25519 uh, the user land tools like wireguard config and wireguard keygen and set up some atf test uh, utilizing rem kernels to actually test this new kernel code and then uh, they're also playing with the uh, user space implementation i'm guessing in c rather than in go Mm. Uh, which uses some of the same source code as what's available in the kernel, thanks to rump kernels, um, but also provides the WireGuard user space uh, to manage your WireGuard instances. And they show how you go about doing it, just creating the WireGuard cloned interface, give it an IP, uh, generate some keys, um, set it up, add the peer, and it works. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Cool. Very nice work. And they show how you do the same thing with user space, uh, where you might not have the ability to create the interface or whatever. And then they have some diagrams of how it works. And acknowledgments of the people that helped. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see WireGuard make it to FreeBSD as well. Yes, a current module would be nice to, to have. Uh, Maybe someone's working on it already, and we didn't know, uh, don't know yet. So if you're out there, let us know. <laughs> uh, the next item is uh, from NetBSD about removing PF. Yes, if it had been a couple days later, uh, we might have thought it was an April Fool's joke, but it was mm. not. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of serious about it uh, because their um, internal discussions about removing PF from NetBSD um, are at the point where they say, well, currently NetBSD's PF is 11 years old, but has received no maintenance and has accumulated bugs and vulnerabilities that were fixed upstream, but not in NetBSD. The latest example are two vulnerabilities recently discovered in PF uh, that haven't been fixed in NetBSD's PF by lack of interest. Yeah, so, so yeah. they've been running a lot of fuzzing and stuff and finding uh, interesting things in all the BSD stacks, uh, but they also found a bunch of PF bugs that had been found and fixed in the other BSDs, but never... No one ever uh, worked on them on NetBSD. 
And I guess nowadays there's more interest in NetBSD's NPF, which is a clean, secure, and scalable firewall enabled by default that can be used instead, even if it doesn't have all the features PF has for now. But I guess um, more people will happily work on NPF rather than the outdated PF in NetBSD. So that's probably why there's the decision. So um, that's already been done now, or is it mostly an uh, announcement? Um, I'm not sure when they're planning to actually do it. But they say, given NPF's advanced design and good integration with the kernel, trying to maintain PF seems like a huge effort for little benefit, uh, and they'd rather have the resources put uh, into NPF. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's always difficult to decide what needs to go or how much resources you have available and where should they uh, put their work into. And if there's something not maintained, then it's probably an indicator that it should uh, leave the, the base system or the system altogether. Yep. Then we have okay. a, an interesting one. Um, so uh, on Visual Studio on Windows, and I guess Visual Studio isn't just for Windows anymore, um, comes with a tool called nmake. Uh, it processes files in roughly the same way as tr- the traditional Unix make tool. Uh, why is it called nmake instead of make? Well, I say back in the late 1980s, the Microsoft uh, Languages toolchain included a make command, which we will uh, generously describe as vaguely inspired by the Unix make command. It processed files that look like make files, but its uh, dependency calculations were nowhere near as sophisticated as the real Unix make. And, you know, make on Unix has come a long way in the last 40 years. Oh, yeah. uh, as a result, you had to play games with the order of the evaluation in order to get anything to build in the correct order. This woefully inadequate make program was a source of much dissatisfaction. A developer was selected to re-implement make from the ground up using a clean room design working only from the makefile specification without any access to the Unix source code. To distinguish this new version from the old busted version, uh, she gave the new version the name NewMake, or NMake. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tribute to the success of the new version that everyone has forgotten that the old one uh, ever existed. <laughs> um, and then they also talk about uh, MASM, M-A-S-M, uh, and ask, what does the M stand for? Uh, you might have assumed uh, Microsoft, but uh, that one's easy. The M stands for Macro. It's the Microsoft Macro Assembler, which made uh, it different from the plain old ASM tool, uh, which I think on most Unixes is just called AS, uh, or the GCC one is just called AS, because mm-hmm. uh, it actually supports macros rather than uh, you know having to run it through your C preprocessor first and then run it to the assembler. Uh, and they note that the compiler stuff in for Microsoft wasn't called Visual Studio until about 10 years after uh, this whole make discussion. Yep. Uh, yeah, and then I think there's there might be also an nmake that's a NetBSD thing. I don't know. And then there was fmake, and then now there's bmake. And there, Could and very well be, Every level yeah. of make has uh, existed at some point. Mm, all the letters of the alphabet <laughs> are there. <laughs> then we have this complete map of the internet from May uh, 1973. As you can see, on uh, in one screen full, you can fit every host on the internet. Ah, yes, from back in the day. Uh, yep, we got uh, USC, Stanford, uh, 
NASA Ames Research, uh, SRI, which is a research company, uh, Utah, Illinois, MIT, BBN, which is a company that helped write one of the TCP IP implementations, yep. uh, Harvard, uh, there's the University of Aberdeen. The U.S. version or the U.S. Aberdeen? Uh, I don't know if it was that one or the British one. Maybe I'll ask the next US week. One, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, just because it doesn't seem to be far enough away. Mm. Um, and they, they also, also list the, the host types or what? Mm -hmm. And you know this little squiggly line to Hawaii? <laughs> yes, because it was a radio link, I think, instead of a wire line. Mm. Well, yeah, from Lots there of, you would uh, see... Ah. PDP-10s hanging off everything. Ooh, there's somebody <laughs> had a PDP-15. Ah, yeah. And so you would definitely put up this map and say, okay, I want to send a message from my host over to that other colleague that I have at this university or research center. And you would definitely have an overview where this is going or which route this would take. Yep. Then it became a bit more uh, complicated. But more users on that network. And more cat pictures. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, um, here we are <laughs> on today's internet. Uh, the last item we have is NSA Be Gone, a sketchy hardware security device for your X220. So, that's uh, the NSA Be Gone, as a description, sits between a display accessory connector uh, for the webcam, microphones, think light indicator, etc., and the motherboard. Watching, waiting. Upon receiving the top secret signal, Two quick flashes of the think light. It cuts the webcam and microphone data at lines. No more snooping on you. The device also hijacks the HDD activity light to let you know when it's not activated. Ah, okay. So that's just telling you that someone might be using your camera without you knowing. Yes, and gives you a way uh, to signal it with software to tell it to kill your camera. Mm -hmm. And it's basically you buy the hardware and put it into your... Uh, yeah, and it, kinda, it looks like it fits between the ribbon cable and the normal place the ribbon cable connects, uh, allowing it to get rid of any signals you wouldn't want. Mm, okay. Yeah, so okay. for the paranoid On people the questions. There, yes, we have questions as always, but we soon will run out of questions if you don't send them uh, to us in more uh, amounts. So, uh, all things that you find or anything that you're unclear about, have questions for us, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll cover it in future episodes. Otherwise, this will be a very boring section. Uh, the first one who did that is Jake this week uh, with a single jail as a VPN client. Ah, probably piggybacking on last week's episode about jails with Michael Lucas. Uh, it's short and easy. Uh, it says, good morning. Is it possible to run just one jail on a machine as a VPN client? If so, how? Depends on the VPN and stuff. Um, if you're using vImage, where each jail has its own network stack, then yes, you'd be able to do that. But unless you do something else, uh, the VPN will only be connected inside the jail. So if you're on the host, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see or you wouldn't be able to reach things on the other side of the VPN. But that might be what you want. Um, Without vImage, you might be able to do it with some types of VPN. 
like uh, stuff like OpenVPN might work if you can plumb the tap device into the jail and have the right permission changes and so on with your uh, DevFS config to allow OpenVPN in the jail to open and use that tap interface. Um, but yeah, with vImage, yes, uh, it should work with most types of VPN, but um, the VPN will be connected in the jail, which may be what you want, but it may not be. Yeah, or you try um, running that with SSH as a VPN. Maybe that solves your problem already. It's not really a VPN, but yeah. Yeah, it's similar for some kind of tunneling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, so maybe... In these cases, but in general, yes, with vImage jails, so FreeBSD 12, uh, you and you have to specially make that type of jail. Um, you could use it as a VPN client for most types of VPN. Um, but it depends exactly what you're trying to do, whether it's going to work how you want or not. Mm. But I hope uh, that's uh, already satisfying to you. And um, yeah, we continue with Matt about a surprising BSD features question. Uh, goes like the following. Hi, Alan Benedict. Thanks for doing the BSD Now podcast each week. Ah, see, people are still watching us. Um, <laughs> always interesting, and I always learn something. You requested questions, so here is one. See, they heard me already. Uh, several years ago, a career change caused me to start using Windows and macOS after more or less exclusively running Linux for years. I was very surprised to find both these commercial operating systems were missing things I had taken for granted. For example, I didn't expect to find that neither have a built-in package manager. This has been standard on every Linux distro for so many years that when people obviously uh, or previously asked him about the benefits of Linux, it never even occurred to him to mention this. Have you had any similar experiences when being forced to use non-BSD operating systems? Like, uh, are there killer features of the BSD that are so common as to be mundane and uh, not something you recognize until you're forced to work without it? Yes. Um, The first one is Control-T. Uh, SIG info. <laughs> yes. When when you're running a program or and it's not finished, it's it's it's, it's waiting for something to happen or or something is just you know it's running and you're like, what are you doing? Why are you taking so long? You press Control T and it tells you. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's a bit cryptic, but it's like, oh, uh, I'm running on the CPU means it's actually using CPU, uh, or it's like, oh, I'm waiting for some I/O to finish from the disk, or I'm waiting for a write to finish, or I'm reading from the pipe, meaning that the program that you're staring at isn't the one that's being slow. Whatever's feeding it is not keeping up, uh, or you know, things like that, um, or even you know, it's a shell script. It's for doing lots of different things. Control T. Oh, it's currently running sleep, and it's got uh, eight of the ten seconds left still. Okay. So I'm just waiting for a sleep to finish. Mm. Uh, things like that. Uh, second one, I would say, is configuring a VLAN. Uh, having tried on a couple of different types of Linux to configure a VLAN, mm. uh, it's always been this big rigmarole and so on. And it's just like, I have to edit that many text files and do all this or run network minute all this just to do a VLAN. On FreeBSD, I just do if config igb0.17 create and give it the IP address and the subnet mask or whatever and press enter and boom there's a new VLAN interface and it has an IP address I would even expand this to to the whole IP configuration you know if config is sadly missed on other 
uh, non-BSD systems. There's IP, there is, I don't know what. And, and, but most of those are only for extracting information. Most of those, like, I don't, I don't know how you use the IP command on Linux to actually set an IP address. Th- that's my problem. I, yeah. I don't and know you if have... you can. Well, even. Like, I know, I know the old-fashioned Red Hat way where you go and edit etc sysconfig network dash script slash ifcfg dash the name of the interface, <laughs> which is all kinds of random now. Mm. Uh, moved, replaced a dual port Intel card in the one uh, PCIe slot with a half height Mellanox in a different slot, and it went from ENS2F0 because uh, it was in slot two, function zero, uh, and it became ENS1 because it's now in slot one. Uh, but you know, it only has one port, so it doesn't have function numbers. It's just, a, and they're all numbered from one instead of zero. Uh, or the slot numbers are start from one instead of zero, but the function numbers start at zero. So that's not consistent and <laughs> all kinds of confusing. Yeah. And it's just features. I mean, I have typed into a lot of Linux boxes, a, like a, a zpool list just to get a command not understood because they don't even have ZFS in their base version. And so small things like that, it's like, oh, of course I'm not on a BSD system. Or I'm just SSHing into another system that doesn't have those features. I should go back, but sometimes ah, it's unavoidable. Biggest thing is like you do a fresh install and you haven't uh, installed packages yet. Now on BSD, yeah. that's, yes. there are no packages. On, on Linux, there'll be a bunch of packages already or whatever, but um, you don't have TCB dump by default on almost all the Linuxes I've used. Um, but in order to figure out why your network isn't working, the most useful tool would be TCP dump. But you need a working network before you can install packages from the network. So you have this catch-22 where you end up having to like sneaker net a copy of TCP dump over or something. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, and there's more from the chat room pointing out that uh, having useful man pages on some Linux boxes would be nice. Uh, I don't know what, what, where the concept of info pages came from or why that's a thing, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, or that some shell conflicts are in YAML now in a new location where you can't find them right away. Well, this and is so, how you configure the network, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, some of these things are don't change things for the uh, sake of changing. Just keep things as they are and people are used to it and just uh, make it easy for people to do the stuff they want to do on their operating systems. Yeah, but the amount of trouble we had trying to do a VLAN on top of a bonded interface, LACP, on top mm. of a pair of network cards was unfun, especially when you get something like the network manager, this this black box daemon that's running somewhere that you don't really understand that keeps doing things as soon as you touch the files. So you like you save the file and you go to restart the service, but before you've actually done it, their service has decided to start doing stuff. Uh, and then your SSH session goes out or something, and it's just like, <laughs> grr, yeah. and then some more. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, people have more uh, on their private yes, hate list. If, if you have some things that you miss when you have to use something that's not your favorite BSD, do write in and tell us. We'd like to make a giant list of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something that um, you can always pull out and say, ah, that's why well, I'm happy for this. A great talk for a user group or something where you're trying to convert Linux people and be like, now that you've tried your favorite BSD, remember 
all of these things that you don't have over on Linux that you get to use now. And will miss very much, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You get people used to control T and they will curse every time they don't have it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, time for the last question about um, the routing and ZFS from Kiaran, or is it Ciaran? Uh, not sure. Uh, goes like the following. Hi, folks. Greetings from not-so-sunny Sweden. Uh, Long-time listener. First time I write in. Okay. Thanks for your uh keeping up with us. Uh, I hear you guys are fond of questions. Yeah, we kind of are. So I've got two for you. One networking, one regarding ZFS, just for good measure. Having recently moved, I finally have the chance to move my, uh, uh, to build my own infrastructure. Fiber uplink is a godsend. However, my gear is too outdated to keep up with that, which leads me to my first question. Until now, I used an Alex uh, 2D13 board with PFSense. This setup has a, or was a blast. It literally never failed in years of service. Now it's time to step up my game and roll out gigabit in my house. If I'm now seeing this right, AC Wi-Fi is not currently happening on FreeBSD. What are my options? Yeah, um, so likely what I'd recommend is some kind of newer board, whether it's Alex or PC Engines or something else. Uh, some kind of similar machine running your favorite PF sensor, open sensor, whatever you want to run. Um, and then what I usually do is just get a separate wireless access point. Um, sometimes you can get a cheaper one that's just an access point, but usually you get the whole router rigmarole. Um, but if you just disable its DHCP server and the other features of that um, and just have it use DHCP or whatever to get an address from your PFSense, um, then users will associate over the fast AC Wi-Fi to this um uh, Wi-Fi box, uh, but all the routing and the natting and DHCP and all the management stuff will be done by the PFSense. Uh, and this way, you don't have to try to worry about uh, AC drivers or anything like that uh, on the PFSense box. Obviously, it'd be better if, if FreeBSD, Wireless AC, or Wi-Fi 6 or whatever just worked, but <clears throat> you know, at the same time, it's more likely you're going to need to replace your Wi-Fi more often than you need to replace your BSD router. Uh, so sometimes it's helpful to actually have it be separate too. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's... Uh, at my house, it's uh, a FreeBSD short depth 1U running in the rack uh, and then a little USB-powered Wi-Fi thing uh, broadcasting three different access points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, and now for Alan's favorite part, ZFS. Uh, it's time to get a NAS setup. Free NAS sounds like a fine approach to me. Uh, I'm aiming for redundancy. Sadly, buying a whole bucket of disks up front is not an option right now. Initially, I was hoping I could buy two and add the next two soon. How can I grow my Z pool? Am I understanding it correctly that starting with two and adding the next two later would mean I can't achieve a setup in which two out of the four could fail and I'm still uh, running? How could this be achieved? So... It's a little interesting there. So what I recommend in this type of situation is doing sets of mirrors. So you start with the two disks, they'd be mirrored, so you'd get the storage space of one of the two disks. Uh, but it means later, when you add more disks, you can add just two, and you will get more space. Uh, and you can add two more and two more. And eventually, once you've kept adding two at a time until you're out of drive slots, or SATA ports, or whatever, then, by then, uh, the size of hard drive you get for your 
price point will be much bigger and you just buy newer ones and replace the smallest drives with bigger ones one at a time. So when you're doing mirror sets like this, so in the case you have four discs, you'd have one disc and a mirror and one disc and a mirror, and you'd stripe across those two sets of mirrors, you can survive losing two discs only if you lose one from each of the two pairs. But if you lose both of the discs in the same pair, then you're in trouble. Um, so it's kind of, you know, how lucky do you feel? Um, whereas if you did something like all, if you do four discs at a time and did something like raid Z one, well, then you'd only be able to lose one disc. So that's not very good. Uh, so then raid Z two, and you have to do four discs at a time. Um, and you can lose any two, but, um, it's not going to be quite as fast as doing the sets of mirrors. Yeah. Um, so then really, if you need to be able to handle dual concurrent failure without the chance that it's the wrong two discs or whatever, then you'd have to do three discs at a time and do a three deep mirror. But then you're yeah. paying for three discs, but only getting the storage of one. Probably not good enough. Expensive. Uh, yeah. yeah. So most likely what you do is sets of mirrors, two discs at a time, and you can keep adding until you run out of space or uh, like physical space or, or status slots. And then you start replacing the smallest drives with bigger ones one at a time. Um, expanding the pool will be quite easy at that point. You just add the two new disks via the Z pool, uh, add command or via the web interface in FreeNAS. Um, but yes, um, if one disk dies, you want to replace it as soon as possible because if a second one dies and it happens to be the, the pair to the one that died the first time, you might be in trouble. Whereas um, if it's a part of a different one of the mirror sets, then uh, you'll be fine. Yes. And so with ZFS you can, compression... You can withstand two failures as long as it's the right two disks. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, with ZFS uh, compression activated, you would definitely see, oh, I don't need to buy a new disk real depends. soon. Depends you're, on the data that yeah, you have. If you're storing... Uh, video or audio or anything like that, then you're not going to see any useful compression except for on the metadata. Um, and you'll always need more space. So. Yeah, oh, and that, that's unavoidable. But uh, it kind of delays a little bit the next purchase uh, okay. in case you are having good compressible data. Um, but yeah, that's depending on what kind of use case you have for it. But without tools and a little bit of a, a guide how you would approach this is, uh, I guess, a good start to run your so, own yeah, NAS setup. Um, if you do the mirror sets, you can sometimes withstand the loss of two disks as long as it's the right two disks. Or more mm -hmm. importantly, you know, once you have six disks, you can withstand the failure of two as long as it's not the wrong two. <laughs> yeah. You know, technically, if you have eight disks and you so you have four pairs, you could lose one from each pair up to four disks and still be okay. But if you lost two from the same pair, then you're hosed even though you've only lost two discs instead of four so um other thing you can do there is have a hot spare so if you have an odd number of discs then that way when one fails you can start resilvering right away and hope that the amount of time where you're at risk of that second disc dying is smaller um but you know sometimes it's the extra work of copying all the data that's going to make the disc fail so it's hard to say yeah Definitely set but, up monitoring yeah, for your two discs. discs at a time gives you the most flexibility to grow over time. And also, uh, because, you know, if you do 
raids it to a Fortis at a time. Not only do you want to grow Fortis at a time, but when you want to replace the smaller disc with bigger discs, you don't get the extra space until you've replaced all four in a set. Whereas groups of two in mirrors uh, means you get to grow the pool the fastest and you get to uh, upgrade the pool the fastest. But you don't get as much redundancy. Mm. No, that's how it is. Um, but, you know, but, no matter what, you need backups, uh, and so then, yeah, <laughs> you know, the risk of mirrors is probably fine as long as you have a backup. Yeah, and yeah, snapshots are good, but they are not backups, or they can't yeah, replace exactly. backups completely. Yeah. Uh, snapshots right. are a convenient way to to avoid having to use your backup. It's not a replacement mm. for the backup. So thanks for your uh, kind feedback and hopefully your ZFS uh, adventures will go uh, fine. And that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Uh, Thank you for watching as always and see you next week.